The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Why would I say that? Anybody have any idea? Yeah, they like to argue. That's absolutely right. Why else? Does the Bible ever tell you to fight against the factious man? Huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's very interesting that Scripture generally leaves the method of operation open to us. We know generally where we have to go, but God is not interested in creating automatons. But when it comes to a factious man, what does it say? It says in Titus, what? It says, reject a a factious man, a divisive man, a schismatic. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It actually gives us numbers, and boy, have we failed at that in this church. And we've we've talked about it in elders' meeting. And, And we've even said, we're getting what we deserve for putting up with this so long. Listen, a factious man is dividing the church. No tolerance. Nip it in the bud. In our home, if you ever lied as a child, what is your name again? Huh? Callie, Callie. In our home, if you ever lied, you know what happened to you? I never varied how hard I spanked our children, except when there was a lie. No, that's how we're to handle factious people. You cannot be leading sheep while having a sheep out there headbutting everybody and seducing them to go off the cliff. You don't have the ability to be a shepherd and coddle a factious person and justify yourself and and argue with them and all this other stuff and protect the flock. You can't. Warn them once, then a second time. What if it's an elder? Warn them once, then a second time. Number six, don't fight when it's a power struggle. I tried to think of where in Scripture this, this occurs, and I don't have a place, but it's one of the most helpful things that I've ever had anybody teach me. Years ago, I went to a seminar on counseling by Larry Crabb. Some of you remember him. And in that seminar, Crabb said, constantly in, in counseling sessions, you will get into what is called a power struggle. And you know you've hit a power struggle when you care too much about what's going on. All of a sudden, there's something there that you're not comfortable with. And he said, it's a power struggle between you and the person that you're counseling. The minute you recognize that's going on, stop and look at them and say, I thought you wanted my help how would you like me to help you? And I'm telling you, that's one of the most helpful pieces of advice I've ever had in the ministry. The minute you feel that power struggle going on, back out and say, it's not about me. I thought you wanted my help. How can I help you? Don't fight when it's a power struggle. Number seven, don't fight when you're dealing with a fool. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Now, of course, the irony of Scripture is that when Jesus says that you should not cast your pearls before swine, he then immediately says, judge not, lest you be judged. (laughs) It's just one of those, like, cheek-by-jowl sections of Scripture where it's like, okay, the truth lies somewhere in between. You better know who the swine is. Judge the swine a swine, and don't cast your pearls to the swine. And then on the other hand, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, we have a similar one here. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be also like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Right next to each other. Proverbs chapter 26, 4 and 5. Don't fight when you're dealing with a fool. And 
I have a little saying that has been extremely helpful to me in my life, and especially when I was at my former church, where there were just so many things that were awful about it. At the end, one of the elders went around and went to lunch with people in the church and and told them all that I embezzled money from a bank in Wisconsin before I moved to Indiana. It's like, oh yeah, that's me. I have a lot of sins, but embezzling from banks, <laughs> it's not one of them. And another one was that the guy trying to get rid of me who had headed the search committee that brought us here stood up at a meeting called by the elders to fire me. And they'd sent out this letter that was just filled with lies, just accusing me of all this stuff. And then he gets up in the congregational meeting And he says, I just read autobiography, and do you know what he says about our pastor in that autobiography? And everybody's like, no, what? He says, he says that he was a hippie? (laughs) (laughs) And I was sitting there, I had my head in my hands, I was in the very back row in the sanctuary, and I just sat there laughing because I thought, dude... You know, two-thirds of the people here used to be hippies, you know. You didn't help yourself, you know. It was so funny. But anyhow, with all those charges, all of them, pages of them, some truth, but all false. And it comes to a vote, and I never answered. Never. No, no, no. I preached my guts out, and I didn't preach to the subject. Why? Well, the saying that kept going through my mind was, don't answer fools according to their folly. But what I really thought was, don't wrestle with a pig in mud, because a pig likes mud. It's a very helpful thing to keep in your mind. Don't wrestle with a pig in mud, because a pig likes mud. Don't fight when you're dealing with a fool. Number eight, don't fight when it's a secret thing. Now, that's a weird one, isn't it? It may be that the next couple are the most important ones for those of us who are conservative reformed. Do not fight when it's a secret thing. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Let me read something from Calvin. And I didn't have to look more than a few seconds using the PDF search tool, which is as kludgy as a search tool gets to find this. So it's somewhere at the beginning of the Institutes, but it is a recurring theme. It just is on and on and on in Calvin. Calvin is talking about God delaying the creation of the world. And he says, why God delayed so long, it is neither fit nor lawful to inquire. This is a theme constant in Calvin. It is neither fit nor lawful to inquire. Should the human mind presume to do it, it could only fail in the attempt, nor would it be useful for us to know what God, as a trial of the modesty of our faith, has been pleased purposely to conceal. It was a shrewd saying of a good old man. Now, who is he referring to as the good old man? It's the person he quotes most frequently in the Institutes, the second most frequent being Bernard of Clairvaux, Augustine. He says, it was a shrewd saying of a good old man, who when someone pertly asked in derision what God did before the world was created, answered he made hell for the inquisitive. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that's constant in Calvin. That's constant. Do you know how I found it? This is how constant it is. I search for hell. This reproof, he goes on, not less weighty than severe should repress the tickling wantonness, which urges many to indulge in vicious and hurtful speculation. 
The secret things belong to God. We don't fight over the secret things. So much of the discussion in the reform blogosphere and Facebook today is fighting over secret things. We call it scholasticism. Number nine, don't fight over things that aren't clear. It's a little bit of a different point. Some things are clearly secret. Some things are not clear. And I want to quote Calvin again on this. I was reading his section on 1 Corinthians 11, the meaning of the word unworthily. And here's what he says. He says, now this passage gave rise to a question, and now listen to this, which some afterwards agitated with too much keenness. So Calvin is condemning them for being agitators, keen agitators about something they should not agitate over keenly. Whether the unworthy really partake of the Lord's body. Have you ever read Jeremiah Burroughs' Aaron's Rod Blossoming? It goes on and on and on and on and on about whether Judas actually partook of the Lord's Supper. For some were led by the heat of controversy so far as to say that it was received indiscriminately by the good and bad, and many at this time maintain... Okay, so he says what? He says, too much keenness, agitating with too much keenness. Some were led by the heat of controversy, so agitating too keenly, motivated by the heat of controversy. Any of you ever guilty of this with your wife? She tells you the reason you're irritable and critical at the table at night is because you're either you're hangry or you drank too much coffee. Nothing infuriated me at the table at night when I had principles, and my wife told me it was coffee. And so the heat of controversy leads them to take a position so far as that it was received indiscriminately. And many at this day maintain, do you have any any idea what the word is that's used here? It's one of my favorite words. Begins with a P, pertinaciously. Now, what does the word pertinaciously mean? It's overly tenaciously, just wacko. Pertinaciously, Calvin says, that many at this day maintain pertinaciously, and then he says most clamorously, that in the first supper, Peter received no more than Judas. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like sacramentalism, right? What's the motivation? You always have to think people's motivation for things. And then Calvin says, it is indeed with reluctance that I dispute keenly with anyone on this point. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, this is a secondary matter, not only that, but we don't know, and, and why would you be so pertinacious, so keen, so lacking a sense of what? Proportion. But he says, okay, fine, you're making such a big deal out of it. All right, I'm going to have to make a big deal out of it. I dispute cleanly with anyone on this point, which is, in my opinion, not an essential one. But as others allow themselves, without reason, to pronounce with a magisterial air whatever may seem good to them, or to launch out thunderbolts upon everyone that mutters anything to the contrary, we will be excused if we calmly adduce reasons in support of what we reckon to be true. I hold it then as a settled point and will not allow myself to be driven from it that Christ cannot be disjoined from his spirit. guy's a trip. Isn't he a trip? Look, we have to address the way that people fight if we're going to fight with them. We have to point out that they're maintaining as a thunderbolt something that is disputable, that's secondary. We have to point out that it's a love of controversy that's causing them to do this. You see, this is what Calvin's doing. He's exposing their motives for what they're doing. And then he takes a position, right? 
And this is a very important point that we remember, that we should not fight over things that aren't clear. Now, why does Calvin fight? Because he ends up fighting, right? Why does he do that? Why does Calvin end up fighting on this? The reason he does it is he has to protect the safe spot for the sheep so that they do not become meat in the mouth of these pertinacious wacko dudes. And the only way he can create a safe spot for them is by showing their bad motives and then saying, this is, this is what I think is true. But you can tell he doesn't really care about what he says is true. So what he's really doing is creating a safe spot for people to have no opinion. Does this make sense to you? And listen, the applications of this are everywhere. About three years ago, I was thinking through my life, and I was thinking, okay, so what have I given myself to in terms of fights? And I thought, well, I hate R2K. I hate it. And then I thought, you know, another thing I hate is redemptive historical preaching. And then I began to look at it and think, why do I hate R2K and redemptive historical preaching? Well, it's not that I hate two kingdom, and I don't hate making distinctions between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, between the church and the civil man. I don't hate any of that stuff. And when it comes to redemptive historical preaching, I certainly don't disagree with Spurgeon, who at this point was very good, and he said, everywhere in the Old Testament, find the shortest path to Jesus. That's good. That's helpful. So why do I hate them? Well, the reason I hate them is they're being used as clubs in the church to silence the sheep and to browbeat the sheep and to intimidate the sheep so that the sheep aren't even able to talk about David and Goliath in the most obvious way that everybody all through history has talked about David and Goliath, which is, I have Goliaths in my life that I need to not be afraid of. And you know, the redemptive historical people, that's not the point of David and, you know, and I was in a room at Presbytery once where two men that I was very close to were like having it out over what the precise right interpretation of David and Goliath was. And I said to them, dudes, Honestly, do you realize that what you're saying is that every single person across all church history who has ever read that text was stupid and made the wrong conclusion about it? How on earth do you have the story of David and Goliath without thinking, what are the Goliaths in my life? It's not wrong to read scripture and to not read John 3.16 wherever you are. Dad wrote once about how, can we please have the story of Naomi be a story of actually taking care of your mother-in-law? <laughs> can we please have that be an application? You know, it's just so pathetic. It's as old as the hills. Redemptive historical preachers are just simply dispensationalist evangelicals who have a more sophisticated vocabulary about it. I grew up in a church that was dispensational evangelical much of my life, and David grew up there too. And every single sermon was John 3.16. It's a difficult thing to describe the relationship of the civil magistrate and the church magistrate and how the church and the state should relate to each other. It's very difficult. What you don't want is people going around browbeating Christians for speaking up in the public square. We don't need less courage today. And so I'm opposed to it, not because I don't think there aren't good points to the R2K movement, one of my all-time favorite books is The False Presence of the Kingdom by Jacques Ellul. The whole book makes the point that every time the church tries to make her sphere conterminous with the sphere of the civil magistrate, the church immediately is destroyed. But men, we cannot allow people who, in the heat of controversy, want to create people that are behind them, and they oppress the sheep by making more specificity than there should be. And we can't oppress preachers. 
We can't have preachers trying to get into the pulpit fearful that somehow they'll offend the person in the congregation that's listened to White Horse Inn and thinks that they know how you should be preaching. We need freedom in the church. And so isn't this weird if you think about Calvin? He's fighting here. He's exposing motives. What is he doing it for? For freedom. That's why I hate redemptive historical preaching in R2K, because they're trying to put everybody into straitjackets. Does this make sense to you? It's wrong. I don't want you having less confidence in the perspicuity of Scripture. Don't fight when it's contending over words, not to wrangle over words. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, solemnly charge in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. So these three, the secret things belong to God, the things that aren't clear should not be made more clear by us, and we should not wrangle over words. That's, that's the conservative reform world, and we must not do it. The next one, I couldn't think of the scripture that would support it, but I think it's self-evident. Number 11, don't fight so that you can be like Doug Wilson. And why? Because you're not Doug Wilson. This is so common on young men. I remember being up speaking at a conference, and a bunch of people from this church came up. And when I got up to speak, I looked down, and the front row had a bunch of young men with bow ties on. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And I think all the love went out of bow ties from that point on with me. It was like, okay, all right. But I think it's very common for young men to copy people that they love. Do, do it, but don't do it. You're not Doug Wilson, and so don't try to be him because it'll, you'll just look like a monster to everyone, and everybody will know what you're trying to do. Number 12, don't fight to prove you aren't afraid. Stupid. You know, don't fight to prove you aren't afraid. Number 13, don't fight in defense of your friends or heroes or something, even though they're actually rightly being attacked and criticized. In other words, don't defend people out of a misplaced sense of loyalty. If they're wrong, let them eat crow. You might be able to help them come down softly. Loyalty does not call any man to defend his friend at the point where he's wrong. And the examples of this that I won't read are the two men who remained in camp and prophesied. And so they came up to Moses and said, you want us to, you know... And Moses said, what? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets so that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Same thing happened with Jesus. Number 14, don't fight when it's your preferences rather than your principles. And learn to tell the difference. And the way I talk about this is I say that as pastors, you realize that you have enough love and affection in your congregation that if you were to make a biblical case for painting a sanctuary black, you could pull it off. Don't, because actually painting a sanctuary is a matter of preference. It's not a matter of principle. And it is hard to discipline your preferences. And so one of the ways that I like to, to remind us of the distinction is, what I say is this, all of an Englishman's preferences are a matter of principle. No, no, no. Number 15, don't fight when you're acting as if you're not fighting. This is one of the things that infuriates me. And it's constant in elders' meetings. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Lower yourself and get into the fray. Let the fray happen. Be humble and fight. Be humble and fight. Don't fight when you're acting as if you're not fighting. It's just disgusting. It's a lie. We had one hilarious thing, Jay Lee, and you can keep that in, where I don't remember the issue, but there was this fight going on in the elders board and not quarreling, 
It was, it was a sweet fight, but it was an intense fight. And all of a sudden, we stopped to pray. And Jay, he's like, oh, Lord, you know that Tim Wagner's an idiot. And how he could even think this, oh, Lord, is beyond me. But what kind of an idiot would think this, Lord, you know? And he's just like going at it in his prayer. And I was sitting there, you know, I'm the moderator. And I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do about this? And so I finally said, look, we're stopping praying right now. We're not going to fight in our prayers, okay? And Jay, being the gracious man he was, just simply took it and said, well, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Number 16 don't fight in the flesh with the wrong weapons. It may be a good fight, but it may be that your weapons of warfare are carnal. Don't stoop to that. Number 17, don't fight when you're just trying to justify yourself. When you're trying to prove yourself right, when you're trying to get glory for yourself, when you're trying to feel important or superior compared to others, which is to say, don't fight over who is the greatest. Now, I'm going to read a couple of things. Be patient because they're important. Luke 22, beginning with verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which of them it might be who was going to do this. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. There's nothing worse about the disciples in in the Gospels. This is the upper room. They know the air is heavy with his impending death. And that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. And that's you. That's me. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So there are the disciples, and what about us? Well, I want to read a section from Life Together by Bonhoeffer. Because I think many of you think that if you and I sat at the table because I'm loud and bodacious and from Philadelphia, that I'm a sinner and you're not, because you're meek and humble and quiet. No, no, no. <laughs> Trust me. Here's what Bonhoeffer says, and it's on this text, Luke 9:46. there arose a reasoning among them, which of them would be the greatest. He says, at the very beginning of Christian fellowship, there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious Life and death contest. There arose a reasoning among them. This is enough to destroy a fellowship. Hence, it is vitally necessary that every Christian community from the very outset face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it. There is no time to lose here, for from the first moment when a man meets another person, he is looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over against that person. David and I can tell you all about this, right? (laughs) It's been the story of our life. A lot of good has come out of it. But boy, you want to talk about rivalry? How about brothers? And then you marshal your church behind you? You can laugh. He says, from the first moment, strategic position he's looking for that he can assume and hold over against that person. There are strong persons and there are weak ones. If a man is not strong, he immediately claims the right of the weak as his own. 
and uses it against the strong. There are gifted and ungifted persons, simple people and difficult people, devout and less devout, the sociable and the solitary. Does not the ungifted person have to take up a position just as well as the gifted person, the difficult one, as well as the simple? And if I am not gifted, then perhaps I am devout. Or if I am not devout, it's only because I don't want to be. I don't want to be devout. May not the sociable individual carry the field before him and put the timid, solitary man to shame? Then may not the solitary person become the undying enemy and ultimate vanquisher of his sociable adversary? Where is there a person who does not with instinctive sureness find the spot where he can stand and defend himself? but which he will never give up to another, for which he will fight with all the drive of his instinct of self-assertion. Now listen, every one of you should be sitting there thinking, that's me, that's me, come on, that's me, come on, come on, you all there, all right? All this can occur, he says, in the most polite or even pious environment. But the important thing is that a Christian community should know that somewhere in it, there will certainly be a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. It's one of the most memorable sections from Life Together. Number 18, don't fight when love should cover the matter. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. The one thing you absolutely have to have in your church is love everywhere. Why? Because there is sin everywhere. And so love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> I always tell people, it doesn't say it covers a multitude of good intentions. It doesn't cover a multitude of mistakes. Love covers sins, a multitude of sins. So don't fight when love should cover the matter. And number 19, remember I said we would begin and end with what? Money. Don't fight over money. My recollection, I think we differ on this, but my recollection is that dad never, ever would fight for money where he worked. My recollection also is that that was dad's attitude towards us, although I think sometimes he struggled with it because of what we were paid by our churches. I remember one time he told me that I should let my church know that another church was coming after me because it might cause them to appreciate me more. Greed in Scripture is said to be the root of all evil, the love of money. And I often talk to pastors who are in conflict, and sooner or later, my nose is smelling. And sooner or later, I'll come to money. And men, we can't do that. We can't do it. And I know what it is to be really angry at my church for what they pay me. I'm not now. I'm, I'm taking unbelievable good care of, right? But there were years where <laughs> it was not nice. But my goodness, do you know the capital you get with your church when you can say with the Apostle Paul and Moses that you haven't coveted their, their possessions? The Apostle Paul says... I've worked with my own hands. The Apostle Paul said, it's only the churches I love that I let give me money, right? I won't take your money. I remember at the beginning of ministry having a man come in my office who hated my guts up in Wisconsin. And he came in and he told me that if, you remember the woman yesterday, well, this was a man in the other church, in the town church. And he said to me, he said, how much longer do you think you're going to get paid if you keep preaching like this, right? Same thing. And I had just gone to an auction of the public school system. I had, with great delight, found a couple of wonderful vacuum cleaners. And so I had bid on the vacuum cleaners, and I had gotten them. And so I brought them into my office with the books. So they were sitting in the corner. And I said, would you turn around and look in that corner? Do you see what's over there? And he looks, and he says, what? I said, do you see what's in there? He said, you mean the vacuum cleaners? I said, yeah, the vacuum cleaners. 
I said, you know, until a couple months ago, that's how I earned my living, and I miss it. Because when I got done vacuuming, I could see what I'd done. I don't ever see what I do here. And I would love to have an excuse to start using those vacuum cleaners. And then you know what I said to him? I said, but if I do, I will still preach to you. In other words, I'm not going to leave because you don't pay me. And that has to be our commitment in the ministry. None of us should ever work for money. I am hopeful that the day is going to quickly come when all of America is going to stop paying their pastors. I've been convinced my whole life in the ministry that the worst karma of the church today is that we get paid. And the people who really know me know, you know, that if I wasn't getting paid, do you think I wouldn't be here? (laughs) Your people need to know that you have a forehead as hard as flint and that you actually miss washing windows. Okay, guys? Why? Because we love God, and we love our sheep, and we do it for love. We don't do it for money. Don't ever fight over money, ever. Now, do I say don't ever fight over money? That was wrong. Don't ever fight for your money, but you will have to fight over money because that's how greedy people try to oppress the church. When I first went to my former church, there was a very wealthy doctor in that church who never came to church. He used to. And his wife was a very sort of super spiritual, beautiful, rich woman. One day she came to me in a very sweet way. She said, would you please go talk to my husband? He's, he's depressed. And I said, sure, I'm very happy to do that. And she said, the reason he's depressed is that he got into some schemes of investment where he avoided paying taxes, and now he has a tax bill of $3 million. And he doesn't see how he's ever going to work his way out of it. I said, sure, I'll go talk to him. So I went over to his office. He'd never met me. And I said, would you please tell Dr. Smith, that that wasn't his name, would you tell Dr. Smith uh, that I'm here to see him? She said, well, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have an appointment. And she said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm his pastor. I said, "Just, just tell him Tim Bailey's here. He'll know who I am. Sure enough, within just a couple minutes, I'm in his office, right? He's behind the desk, and he has the grandest house in Bloomington, I think still. And so he sits there, well, what can I do for you, pastor? Because, you know, she hadn't told him that she was going to have her pastor stop in, you know. And I said, well, I hear that you're depressed. So then he opened up and he said, yeah, I'm very depressed. I said, why? And he said, well, because I, you know, I'm in hawk $3 million to the IRS. I said, so how did it happen? He explained it to me. And then I said to him, I said, do you tithe? And he just, like a beautiful, profane man that he was, he just laughed out loud at me instantly. He goes, ah, ha, ha. No, I don't tithe. And I said, why not? And he said, because I earn too much money to tithe. Direct quote. And I said, well, that's why you're having the financial troubles you're having, because you don't tithe. I said, you're not honoring God with your money. And God's not going to put up with that from you. And then I said to him, you have a lot of friends who are elders at, at, at our church, don't you? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, have any of them ever asked you if you tithe? Because they all knew he was depressed and they were all concerned about him. And he said, no. And I said, why? In other words, I tried to play the innocent. And he said, well, because none of them tithe. I love pagans because they're honest. And so I looked at him and I said, "Uh, Dr. Smith, I just have a very simple word of advice for you. And that is you begin to give your money to God. It's counterintuitive. I know that. You're in hawk. Give your money to God. And I said, now I know, being a rich man, you think I'm saying that to you because I'm your pastor. And I said, so the one stipulation I'll make to you is you may not give a penny to this church. Not a penny. You give it to any church you want. Just pick one out of the telephone book. And of course, you know what happened, don't you? 
What happened when I said that to him? What was his response? What do you think? He was not pleased. He was angry. Now, why would he be angry? Well, a man that loves money thinks everybody loves money. And all of a sudden, he found out that I was a wild-eyed enthusiast. (laughs) And that I would not be reasonable. And that gave him a hint that maybe God wouldn't be either. So don't ever, ever fight for money. You'll have to fight over money, but don't ever fight for it. Thank you for coming. Let's pray.